Welcome and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's Washington National Tax International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On today's episode of the podcast, we'll be exploring recent challenges to the validity of Treasury regulations. In particular, we'll discuss Liberty Global, a recent case in which a federal district court held a TCJ-related regulation to be invalid. And we'll consider what, if anything, this case tells us about the validity of the recently issued foreign tax credit regulations. For this discussion, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague here at KPMG and the first-time guest of this podcast, Ron Dombrowski. Ron has had a long and distinguished career, which includes stints at the IRS and the Senate Finance Committee, and is currently a principal and technical deputy in KPMG's Washington National Tax Practice. Ron, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Gary. Good to be here. In Liberty Global, the U.S. District Court for the District of Colorado considered the validity of the temporary regs under Section 245 Cap A, which were issued in June 2019, but applied retroactively to distributions occurring after December 31st, 2017. The taxpayer had engaged in a so-called out-from-under transaction in 2018, before the temporary regulations had been issued. In this transaction, the taxpayer received a deemed dividend from a CFC that it believed qualified for the Section 245 Cap A dividends received deduction. Let's just call it the DRD for short. But this transaction ran afoul of the subsequently issued but retroactively applied temporary 245 Cap A regs. The IRS asserted that these regulations denied the taxpayer the benefit of the DRD and that therefore the deemed dividend was taxable at the ordinary corporate rate. The taxpayer paid the assessed amount and petitioned the federal district court in Colorado for refund on the basis that the temp regs were invalid. The taxpayer and Liberty Global made three arguments to support its invalidity position. First, the temporary regs were contrary to the express language of the statute. There's no ambiguity in the language of the statute that would give the Treasury and IRS gap-filling authority to promulgate regulations. In other words, that the regulations did not overcome Chevron step one. More on that later. Second, the taxpayer argued that the Treasury Department did not have the authority to make the temp regs retroactive. And finally, the taxpayer argued that the temp regs were not promulgated in compliance with the requirements of the Administrative Procedure Act, or APA. The court found that the temp regs were invalid based on the taxpayer's third argument, that the regs did not comply with the APA. The court did not address the other two arguments. Ron, let's start with a simple question. What is the APA? Yeah, this will it'll get complicated quickly. So starting starting simple will be good. So uh, the APA is the Administrative Procedures Act. So it's Title V of the U.S. Code. So obviously, 
the Internal Revenue Code is in Title 26, so pretty far away. The APA itself, you know, has been on the books in its current form pretty much since 1966, but it provides a whole series of comprehensive rules for promulgating regulations for any U.S. government agency. So any kind of rule that a government agency will put out, it has to go comply with this APA process. I mean, there are also provisions governing court review and the standard of court review. So a pretty comprehensive set of rules. So what did Treasury do or not do to fail to comply with the APA? Yeah, on the procedural side of the APA rules, if you want to have your rules have force of law, so they call them sort of legislative rules in the context of the APA, you need to provide affected, in in our case, taxpayers, a period of 30 days to comment on the regulations. So you've got to put the regulations out there. You have to wait 30 days and then you have to assess the comments. Then you can finalize your regulations. As you noted, here we had temporary regulations that dropped immediately and were effective immediately with retroactive application. So that clearly was not following the uh, notice and comment provisions. The court kind of looked at it and and did its assessment, uh, took into account the government's arguments and found that the notice and comment provision was required and was not complied with. And the reg did not have force of law, was not enforceable in front of the court. An exception to the notice and comment procedures under the APA is if the agency for good cause finds and incorporates that finding in a brief statement of reasons and the rules issued that notice and public procedure is impractical, unnecessary, or contrary to the public interest. The preamble to the Tempregs did provide such a statement. Why didn't the court accept the government's good cause statement? And are there any lessons from this for Treasury and taxpayers alike? In the context that it looked like Treasury was trying to put out these regulations within 18 months of the Tax Cuts and Job Act passing so that it could invoke Section 7805's retroactivity provisions. So the regulations showed up 18 months after the statute, but they were made applicable basically to the whole covered period under the statute. And this was allowed under the 7805 statutory provisions. Broadly, the government pointed to this 18-month requirement and the problems with putting out regulations in the context of this giant Tax Cuts and Job Act bill. The court really didn't buy it and cited to some extent to APA case law, but this wasn't the kind of case that traditionally good cause has been found for. Um, I think if you look into the the history of kind of the good cause exception, it's, it's a lot more emergency situations. And the court didn't view this as an emergency and didn't view the statutory 18-month limit as creating sort of enough good cause emergency in this situation. So when I started my career in tax during the halcyon days immediately before the collapse of Lehman Brothers, before anyone outside of Wall Street had ever heard of a collateralized debt obligation, I don't recall ever hearing about the APA in the context of tax regulations. I heard quite a bit about Chevron, but not APA. Has something changed recently to make the APA more important for tax regs? 
Yeah, I'm not sure how anything's recent. I mean, really, this is like the evolution of the common law, and it kind of moves at its own pace. But, you know, as I said, the APA had shown up in 1966, and it's been kind of evolving and developing since then. Almost on a separate track, you know, you said you had heard of Chevron. Chevron showed up in 1984 and wasn't actually an APA case, although it kind of used language that kind of mirrored the APA, this arbitrary and capricious standard for step two in Chevron. So you, you had these common law sort of developments around the APA itself, and then generally just the judiciary's review of agency regulations. And that had predated the APA and was kind of trucking along. Amongst these things, there was this notion of tax exceptionalism in guidance that whatever the rules are out there, they're going to be a little bit different for tax. And what are the origins of that? You know, it probably relates back to um, within the code, we had talked about Section 7805, which governs rules and regulations under the Internal Revenue Code. That's been around since 1954 in its broadly current form. And it provides a pretty strong delegation to the Secretary of the Treasury to put out you know, guidance and, and to administer rules and regulations around the code. And so you know, that was sort of out there. There was a strong view in, in courts, you know, didn't necessarily upset this, uh, that the Administrative Procedures Act, that, that's not a thing that Treasury regs have to worry about. And even in the context of the general review, you know, there was Chevron, but there were also other court, Supreme Court precedents that governed the interpretation and the, the validity of tax regulations. And so you had these kind of parallel tracks kind of trucking along and tax was off on the side a little bit. All this changed in 2011. 2011, there was the Mayo Foundation Supreme Court case. It wasn't actually that case, wasn't actually an Administrative Procedures Act case itself. Um, it was decided on Chevron, but in the course of the decision, which kind of remarkably the government won, so it's like this Pyrrhic victory thing, uh, the government won, but in laying out what the procedural law was that applied to the evaluation of the regulation, the Supreme Court, unanimous opinion, uh, Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts wrote the opinion, um, said, you know, there's no tax exceptionalism. Like all of our administrative rules apply to tax just like any other agency's rules. So Treasury, you're not different. We're going to go apply Chevron in this case, and we're going to get rid of the other standards that are out there. National Muffler is the um, other predominant Supreme Court precedent that was kind of out there and, and potentially in conflict. So the Supreme Court laid it out that no tax exceptionalism, all the administrative rules apply to Treasury regulations just like any other agency rules. And now, in the 11 years since, we've been dealing with the aftermath of that, when its own common law glacial pace has been unfolding. Ron, what, what's happened since the Mayo Foundation case in, in 2011? Yeah, well, it's been like these fits and starts of trying to figure out how the tax non-exceptionalism era actually applies. And so there have been a number of cases where different Taxpayers have challenged regulations on different grounds, and courts have sort of wrestled with, well, what does the APA mean? What does you know Chevron mean in the context of tax regulations? So we've seen the Altera case, which uh, en banc unanimous tax court invalidated a reg 
um, on Chevron, you know, uh, reasoned decision-making ground. So, so this is kind of an APA flavor case. Uh, the Ninth Circuit reversed that. The Supreme Court denied cert. So, you know, we had a unanimous tax court decision on administrative law and reg validity invalidated in the Ninth Circuit. There was the Chamber of Commerce decision in 2017, which dealt with Section 7874 regulations dealing with inversions. There was another temporary reg situation, kind of similar to Liberty Global. Treasury put out regulations, made them immediately effective, and they were in temporary regulation form. There was no notice and comment. A taxpayer challenged on a number of grounds. The court said, well, yeah, notice and comment was required. In that case, the government argued, well, what about 7805? Doesn't this you know, kind of protect us? And 7805 now in its current form contemplates temporary regulations. So don't we have latitude to just put out temporary regulations? And the, the court looking to APA authority said, well, no, the standard actually is if Congress wants to exempt an agency or, or a law from the APA requirements, it needs to be very explicit when it does so. And 7805 is not explicit. And so the APA applies, no notice and comment, reg was invalid. So the Liberty Global case was decided solely on APA grounds. We've mentioned several times Chevron. Chevron was argued by the taxpayer in Liberty Global, but was never decided on by the court. Ron, let's Let's talk about Chevron. What What's the test under Chevron for determining whether a reg is valid? Yeah, so Sh- Chevron, and this is sort of, is the law, you know, being put out in the form of a regulation compliant with the statute? And, and is, is it a good law? And the standard there, which, you know, again, there is this parallel under the APA, we have a two-step process. The first step is, did the statute provide an answer? And is that answer different than what the Treasury regulation is providing? The other way to frame this is, is the statute ambiguous? And if the answer to these questions are, are yes, the statute's ambiguous, there's a gap for the agency to fill or for Treasury to fill in this situation. You go on to the second step. The second step is whether the rule promulgated by the agency, so the Treasury regulation, uh, is that arbitrary and capricious? If it's not arbitrary and capricious, then the regulation is valid. Uh, and, and if it's found to be arbitrary and capricious, and there's you know, myriad case law on this, it's struck down and is not an enforceable reg. So, you know, this two-step process has started, you know, in 1984 with Chevron. Um, it's still evolving. I mean, I think folks have looked to the uh, King versus Burwell Supreme Court decision of a few years back that dealt with the ACA uh, state-run health care exchanges. You know, tax practitioners have argued that that King v. Burwell actually expanded Chevron a little bit and created this Chevron step zero kind of, you know, what's the original intent of the statute itself and, and the framework of the statute. And, you know, that might well be true, but it's it's interesting just all of this law is continuing to evolve in sort of real time. And we're kind of having to deal with, you know, taxes introduction into this world and, and this world itself evolving with, you know, changes in judicial 
views on on Chevron and its role and its interpretation. Before we totally move on from Liberty Global, Ron, what what do you view the significance of this case being? Big picture, I mean, it's another, you know, hey, the Administrative Procedure Act, tax exceptionalism is gone. It brought in the good cause exception and, and kind of put away the 7805 arguments further. Um, so it, it's a progression, certainly. But, you know, I don't know that the result is terribly surprising in the current environment and the way sort of the cases have been trending. And, you know, process does matter. And the full, you know, Title V APA process needs to be complied with. And does this have any impact on the final 245 Cap A regs? This decision doesn't. So temporary regulations are always promulgated and Section 7805 itself mandates it. You have to put out proposed regs when you put out temporary regs. So the temporary regs failed. They did not have force of law. Uh, but those proposed regs were you know, out there. They were out there for 30 days. They provided 30 days of notice and comment. In the final regs, the government made them prospective. So, so the, the day the temporary regs were dropped was the same day the proposed regs were dropped. Those regs were ultimately finalized and just made retroactive to the, you know, basically the day after the temporary regs were dropped. So that was a valid APA process. You know, you, you still have questions on the substance. So the court in Liberty Global did not address the Chevron arguments, didn't address sort of the other things. It just had, it had one, the substantive grounds under the APA that it hung its hat on. So the, the final regs are kind of independent and not affected by the court's decision. It, it's also worth noting that court's decision is, you know, that was in a the district court in Colorado. We're still in the appeals period. Don't know if the government's going to appeal the decision. And, you know, this might not be the final word. That's a good point. So are invalidity challenges just happening more often these days and or is it just my imagination and and if it's not my imagination why why is that yeah i don't have you know the kind of the empirical data but it certainly does seem that way and i think there's sort of two things going on we've alluded to it like in the first instance you know there's this kind of adaptation and just trying to figure out what the apa means so you know we've seen the government sort of go through a, a stages of, well, let's see what the limits are here. And it's immediately effective temporary regs. Where do they go? Can we argue that 7805 protects us? What are the limits? Does good cause, like how does it apply in the tax context? There's also this notion of, uh, you'll hear these discussions of legislative guidance versus interpretive guidance. And and this is uh, an APA notion, legislative versus interpretive. But the case law as it's developed says, you know, legislative guidance means if you want it to have force of law and certainly any Treasury regulation that's promulgated, Treasury wants it to have force of law. And and so those are always going to be legislative. Interpretive guidance is when the agency wants to tell you what it thinks the statute means. It's not as binding. It is akin to and probably covering revenue rulings that Treasury and the IRS might issue that give their interpretation, but are you know subject to a less rigorous promulgation process and are kind of accordingly given less deference by the courts. So 
you know, there's this framework that's out there in the APA and so kind of figuring out how it matches up with what Treasury has been putting out as its guidance um, has been ongoing. The second kind of big thing is, you know, almost the, uh, the gorilla in the room or elephant in the room. So some large animal in the room, um, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, enormous, very complex legislative package that left a lot of very challenging issues, um, gaps, and put a lot of, you know, its size kind of created time pressure on Treasury to, to react and kind of formulate plans and put out guidance to address and prioritize really flaws and, and you know, refine the guidance. It also created a lot of issue pressure, um, just, you know, things that the statute said that, did they really mean that? you know, put a lot of pressure on Chevron one issues. And so I think we've seen a lot of challenges coming up around that. Um, and, and that continues, you know, even today. And Liberty Global is certainly, uh, you know, in that, uh, in, in that the taxpayer raised both substantive and procedural challenges. Thanks, Ron. That's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about next. As we've discussed on prior episodes of this podcast, the final foreign tax credit regulations, which were released in late December 2021, significantly changed the rules relating to the determination of whether a foreign levy is a creditable income tax. In particular, the final regulations added an attribution requirement, formerly known under the proposed regs as the jurisdictional nexus requirement, which generally requires a foreign tax to employ sourcing rules that are, quote, reasonably similar to our sourcing rules. For example, absent an applicable treaty, a foreign country's royalty withholding tax is only creditable in the U.S. under these regs if the foreign levy is assessed based on place of use of the IP rather than based on the residence of the payer. Many commentators have floated arguments supporting the invalidity of these regs. Is there any reason that the government should be concerned about an APA challenge here? Yeah, so APA on the procedural side, um, there were certainly a lot of comments given on the regulations. The preamble to the final regulations is voluminous. Um, and, and, you know, certainly there isn't a, a notice problem here. The, the proposed regs are out for well more than 30 days. But, you know, there are issues around whether, you know, Treasury's consideration of the comments was adequate. That might be a place to look, but it, it's, uh, you know, that's probably a challenging place to mount a, a challenge on these regs, just given the size and the scope of the preamble and, and what they covered in there. Um, but possible. Okay, so how might Chevron play out here? Um, particularly in the context of the attribution requirement. Yeah, the substantive side's a lot more interesting. And, and you know, all these different parts of the regs have different applications. But, you know, you raise the attribution point. So there's this jurisdictional nexus sourcing kind of element of the creditability regulations. You know, that that's kind of bringing us into Chevron 1 in a lot of ways. You know, on, on the one hand, like we've had pretty stable law for a very long time. And and case law and prior um, interpretations of the statute had kind of glossed around this predominant character. You know, is it if the U.S. had implemented the, inc the tax in question, would we call it an income tax? 
there is some question about whether that is sort of the congressional law. There's also just kind of more focused questions um, way back in like 1920 or so. It's sort of the birth of the foreign tax credit system, and indeed the birth of the Internal Revenue Code. Congress had pivoted away from something that looked a lot like uh, an attribution approach to creditability. And it instead moved to, you know, what we have is the foreign tax credit limitation system. So, you know, the, the congressional framework, if you would, was a you know, broad sort of generous definition of taxes. And then the foreign tax credit limitation was meant to sort of be the governor on excessive and inappropriate crediting. Has Treasury sort of in these regulations upset that? And is that sort of contrary to the statute in the statutory regime Congress enacted, you know, basically in like 1922 or so? Interesting issue, a lot to be sort of developed in there. More narrowly, for income taxes themselves, so, so 901 taxes, there's a lot of cliffs that are created. And, and one area in particular is in the cost recovery rules, they have a per se list. And it raises the question of whether you know, if you disallow, a, if, a, if a foreign jurisdiction disallows a dollar of deduction and it's not sort of disallowed for a good enough U.S. tax reason, is my whole income tax, my foreign levy, not creditable? Um, and, and is that sort of dollar of denial can, can blow up an entire uh, tax? Is that you know, arbitrary and capricious in the context of a Chevron 2 analysis? Again, not much direct precedent to sort of look to, but an interesting question. And this also raises sort of a, a bigger scope issue here. These regulations haven't been applied against the taxpayer yet. So, you know, it's a little premature. We have to see how Treasury and the IRS actually end up interpreting the rules they've written. And, and certainly there's been discussion on, you know, they might have a softer view on what the words mean than what I'll call the worst fears of many practitioners are. So, you know, ultimately we have to see how these regulations are actually applied by the IRS in exam, you know, when taxpayers get challenged, um, and then we'll see what the scope of sort of arguments against are. Thanks, Ron. So reg invalidity is certainly in the air these days. The Liberty Global case may just be a district court case, and the government will almost certainly appeal this decision, or at least not acquiesce, but it is consistent with the trend of courts rejecting the concept of tax exceptionalism. And it might just be the tip of the iceberg or the spear, as we are almost certain to see challenges to one or, or more aspects of the final foreign tax credit regs in the coming months and years. I hope that you found this episode helpful in outlining the contours of a possible challenge to those and other tax regulations. And I want to thank Jason Horner, a KPMG principal in the Silicon Valley office, for suggesting this topic. If any of you have suggestions for topics for this podcast, feel free to email me at gscanlon at kpmg.com, or you can reach me on my LinkedIn page. In the meantime, we'll be on the lookout for developments with respect to the Liberty Global case, as well as any other challenges to international tax regulations. Please stay tuned for future episodes of KPMG's Inside International Tax for these and other exciting trends and developments related to U.S. international tax. Take care.